So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection Now, with your hosts, Jean Victoria Norlock and Rick O'Shields, bringing your inner life to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to this now edition of Everyday Connection. I am, once again, Rico Shields, and far to my left and slightly under the weather, Jean Victoria Norlock. Um, how are you, Jean, or did I cover that? <laughs> um, try not to make me laugh too much because I'll end up coughing, but no, I'm, I'm better. I'm on the mend. Um, it's just a cold Dude, I but you know I mean cold sucks. So <laughs> I've been in bed for two days with with fun with my virus. I got to know my virus really well, and um, now being that my virus is what it is and it's following its true nature, it's uh, dying off <clears throat> and uh, going away, and I am uh, getting better and will be stronger than before I got sick which usually happens because when you get sick suddenly, well, what you should be doing is taking care of yourself and giving yourself some extra nutrition and all that stuff. So when the virus does finally give up and go, oh, the body's too strong, I'm going to go somewhere else, then you, you come out of it stronger than you did before. So like you say, Rick, it's always it's a system reset. I've been resetting for a couple of days. Reboot. Right. <laughs> Immune system resets. The common cold, that's why they've never been able to cure it, never will, in my opinion, or according to the information I've been given. Um, so I'm glad that's all working for you. It's, um, you know, we we mentioned briefly, we talked about the folks in Costa Rica um, briefly in the pre-show chat that we had with our guest, and... Uh, well, he may even chime in uh, later about the folks here in Costa Rica. But, you know, I talk about the people in Costa Rica and that, how I find them to be wonderful, uh, contrary to what some videos on YouTube might lead you to believe. Um, I'm convinced those YouTube videos are made by people that didn't like the people where they were. And so then now they've come here and thinking that they're going to like the people here. And, and I'd say that's a personal problem. But but uh, <laughs> yesterday I was uh, I had a couple of errands that I had to run, and uh, so I was driving back from Ojochal, and um, I saw a gentleman on the side of the road, and he as he saw me coming, he stood up, and put his arm out, and so I stopped. I have a big Land Cruiser, I, you know. I have room. I've given in the last week. I've probably given ten people rides, and. Um, so I stopped, and this gentleman was broken down on the side of the road. Uh, he had managed to get his car pulled up a little 
pushed up into a little driveway, so I didn't see it for the high grass. They're just now starting to trim the grass along the sides of the highway, so it's six foot tall right now. Good cover. But anyway, I uh, the, the point being that uh, I picked him up. I asked him, are you going to Uvita? He said, yes. I said, I am too. Here we go. And... Um, and he just was overwhelming with the number of thank yous and your wonderfuls and and um but before we had reached uh, Uvita which is only about a 10 minute drive from Ohachal and um uh, he had offered that uh you know he said back where my car's broken down about 100 meters um north of that on the on the beach side of the road there's a little driveway there and um and a gate and and um I anyway I have the keys to the gate so if sometime you'd like to go to the beach where it's quiet um you just call me and I'll I'll take you I'll open up the gate we'll go in there and we'll have some fun Oh that's awesome <laughs> And you know when Pick was the last shaker and now you have access to your own private beach in Costa Rica. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. It, it's, as, as the other gringos on YouTube say, you know, these these people in Costa Rica, they're not nice, they're not generous, they don't do any of that kind of stuff. I don't know what people were thinking. Well, what they were thinking was that if you're nice and generous and and, uh, uh, and just a minor soapbox, um, look, people, if you're going to give folks a hard time that, you know, you're in the United States, you have to learn English. Well, welcome to Costa Rica. We speak Spanish here. You know, don't come down here and demand that. That I'm just saying. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I did see a video that was really good that was done by a fellow that runs tours down here that was called the top ten things people from the United States do to tick off local Costa Ricans, <laughs> and, uh, one of which was when they when they say where you're from and you say I'm an American, they just look at you funny. The reason they look at you funny is because they're Americans too. They know Christopher Columbus. He was, you know, they've got lots of stuff named after him, and <laughs> and um, so as far as they're concerned, American covers them. The guys from Brazil, the yeah, I, and and I'm just saying, North America, South America, Central America. So it's all America. Yeah, if they say <laughs> where you're from, you you can you can say United States if you want to be you know oddly patriotic or something uncalled for. But I generally just say Texas, and they love that, and they say. See, and here's the thing. Here's the thing, Rick. Most people make this this strange assumption. I don't know where it comes from. Um, that somebody outside of the U.S. couldn't possibly know what the states are, or what towns are in what states. You know, what major cities. Um, I, I don't know if we make this assumption that we think they're uneducated or um, not worldly or they don't have access to the news. I don't know what that's about. But if anybody else, if anybody in the U.S. asked you where do you live, you'd say, I'm from Texas or I'm from Houston. Um, if anybody in Canada asked you where are you from, you'd say, I'm from Texas or from Houston. So you go to a foreign country and they ask you where you're from. 
I'm from America or I'm from the United States. Oh, come on now. Really? Or, or Why would you treat them any differently than you would treat somebody from your own country? Or worse, and I've heard it many, many times, is people, the, the local will ask, where are you from? And the answer is, I'm an American. That's not even an that's not even an answer to the question that was asked. Because I'm an American is not an indication of where you're from. I don't care who you're talking to. It's just, you know, maybe in a general, you know, look on the globe sort of way, but it just, you know, be nice. Weird. Be nice, weird. be polite. It's weird. Be a guest in someone else's country and and um you get along fine. They're wonderful people. They really are. And, um, um, you know, they are very gracious, very gracious people mm -hmm. with a lot uh, to teach. Yeah. About how to chill out and relax. Stop taking it all so seriously. (laughs) And I have also discovered, too, that, you know, several of the people I've mentioned, you know, where I'm from, you know, that ask me where I'm from, and I tell them later in the conversation, you find out that they spent. Like my mechanic, he spent like five years in the United States. So he knows what's up in the United States. He's been there. And um, uh, and is quite good at surmising things, you know. He said, he said, yeah, and, and but while I was there, all I did was work and sleep. <laughs> he said, here, here, I work, I have a job, I work, but I also have my family and, and we we spend time together and we eat together and and sometimes we go to the beach and and um uh and I said there's more balance he said yes yes that's it balance there's there, there's balance here he said that's why people's health is better here and because i had mentioned that my health is better here and i i don't i don't know clean water clean air clean and and he promptly explained it's because life is balanced here and uh, that's that. That was my mechanic. Of course, my mechanic's name is George, so I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But it's really Jorge. But that's true. And um, but so they may not know how to build a rocket to go to the moon, but they know how to live a balanced and happy life, which um, I would say is vitally important and comes before flying to the moon. But. Uh- it, I was just going to say, isn't it a little more important to balance our own lives and figure out how to do shit right on this planet than it is to go to some other planet? I mean, come on now. Yeah. <laughs> Let's and, uh, talk about priorities. If you want to talk about priorities important yeah. in life, figuring this out, figuring this earth thing out, this this family, this community, this social structure, education, healthcare system stuff that we're doing here, interaction, relationships, um, self-awareness, self-care, just, just learning promise, how to live to I me we'll is so much more important than going to the moon. Yeah, we'll figure out how to go to the moon again after we get all the rest of that straightened out, you know. And, um, right. Uh, uh, <laughs> so it'll be a little while, but well, we're we're making great progress because, you know, uh speaking of progress and change and balance and and uh, uh you know to bring up our our friend the pope again i'm not even catholic but uh, uh but i really like this guy because he recently was given a talk to some of his fellow jesuits and um 
Uh, I don't know if everybody's aware. Uh, the church has, well, I think everybody's aware the church owns real estate all over the planet, like tons of it. And they also have lots of buildings. And uh, it, 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 at present, they have a lot of uh, convents and monasteries that are empty because not so many people are joining the priesthood and, and sisterhood anymore. And so somewhere within the last 20 years or 30 years, it was determined that, well, we'll just take these empty places and we'll turn them into hotels and make some money for the church. And, um, and you know, so that's their explanation. is the money goes to the church, it's going to do good. Uh, his explanation, the Pope's explanation, was very straightforward. I have it on my wall. I have his quote, if you want to see it, with the link to where you can verify it all and all that, if you're really in need of those sorts of things. But but he told his fellow Jesuits, he says, we we, we shouldn't be taking these empty facilities and using them to make money. They don't belong to us. They belong to the flesh of Christ, and that's what these refugees are. So let's get the refugees into the empty buildings so they have a place to live and um, and close down these hotel things. And it was, to me, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, that was the thing. It was Catholic churches along with many other types of churches. The Baptist church I grew up in, the doors were never locked. The doors were never locked at the Catholic church. You were, you know, homeless, it was cold, wet, or you were in trouble, or you what? You went to the church and you said, I need sanctuary. And they said, come in, my son or daughter or whatever. And, and if there was a mob after you, they went out and said, okay, I'm going to find out what's going on. And, you know, but right now it's under the church's protection. And, and the mob went, Oh, no burning at the stake tonight. And they, and they all went home. And um, and then somewhere during my growing up and becoming a, whatever this adult business is, that that changed and the church was locked and you couldn't go in there. What? And uh, so the fact that he recognizes and, and has now said... Um, because it's kind of hard then for these other Catholics to kind of cross what he said, uh, is that that those things don't belong to us. They belong to the body of Christ. That's the that's church property, not somebody's private property. You don't open a hotel to make money. That's what? And um, I just love that. So anyway, I'm taking too much time because I got... Two of my soapbox issues in at the same banter. So we should introduce our guest. And, you know, who knows? He might have interesting things to say about those subjects. And I know he has many interesting things to say. Um, but we have with us um, today in this now, joining us from the United Kingdom, Richard Poole. How are you, Richard? Doing fine, thanks, Rick. Uh, enjoying listening to your reminiscences there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's many things to uh, comment on that. I just um I've met some wonderful people and I visited I don't know some like 80 or 90 countries and I've met wonderful people everywhere I've been so I guess I'm pretty lucky. So I can certainly reinforce the sort of thing that you've just said there. That's wonderful. Lots of people want to write that off as, you know, 
Yeah, that Rick, he's just lucky. No, not really. I just pick up hitchhikers, and they turn out to be wonderful people with access to private beaches. I don't know. <laughs> Others that don't have access. It's one of those things, if you, um, if you travel with an open heart and open mind, it's amazing how how quickly you come into alignment with others in whatever country you happen to be traveling in who also have open hearts and open minds. It's just one of those things. Like attracts like. Uh, there, you know, there it is. If you're a kind person, you're going to attract kind people. Odd that. <laughs> oh, that's right. I can't imagine that's why right, that would Jean. be. <clears throat> no, that's absolutely right. And and I think it quite often is the question who makes the first move, which um, which defines the relationship. I was just thinking when you were talking, if I may say so, when I my first overseas assignment working was in in Sudan, in North Sudan. I was there for four years, and um, people, I, I could tell you endless stories about about the Sudan. But the first time I went to a restaurant in in Khartoum, I, I ate lunch and I went to pay my bill, and I called the waiter over and he said uh, it's already been paid, and I, and I said really who paid it? He said oh a gentleman sitting over there. I said where is he? He said oh he's he's already left the restaurant, and um, it's happened on a number of occasions that you're a guest in their country and they. Somebody just random hospitality they, they 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 lavish upon you. And a number of times I've been on the bus and I've gone to pay my fare, and um, they have these small boys on the bus who walks around collecting fares. And I go to pay it, offering my money. He says it's already been paid. I said, who's paid it? Oh, some gentleman over there has paid for it. And there was one one occasion where I was sitting next to a Sudanese friend of mine, Mohammed Hassan was his name, a really wonderful gentleman. And um, sitting on the seat in front of us in the bus was uh, uh, an elderly Sudanese gentleman. And the young kid, the conductor, came up to him and asked for asked for him to pay his fare, asked for his fare. And the man said something to him, and the kid moved on without taking his fare. And I turned to my friend, Mohammed Hassan, and I said, Mohammed, what happened there? And Mohammed said, oh, um, the man just told the boy that uh, he didn't have any money. And I said, so he didn't have to pay. Uh, Mohammed saw my surprise on my face and he said well you know there's a word in Arabic that people know when you use it you're telling the truth and I said so he doesn't have to pay and he said well how can he pay if he doesn't have any money and um, this is the <laughs> level of level of trust that you find in some cultures which is very beautiful and very, very moving actually and I wouldn't recommend that you try this on Greyhound or something else but uh, it's, a, it's a level of trust and confidence in people which I, I found quite moving it's interesting because I, I found the same thing when I when I went to the Philippines. Uh, the, I, I can't imagine another country being more hospitable. Um, but then I went to Costa Rica and I found the people to be just as hospitable, just as kind, just as. Um, I, it's not it's not so much that they are trying to please. They're just it's who they are. It's how they yeah. how they live their lives. You know what I mean? They're not trying to please you because you're special, unquote, quote, um, so much as that's just how they would treat a guest in their home, and their country is their home. So if you are a guest in their country, you are also a guest in their home. And that goes back to back to the way that they live, the, the makeup, the core of who they are, um, it's, you know, it's surrounding their family values, their beliefs, their just their overall energy. 
they live very balanced lives. And so they exude that when they interact with other people. It just comes out of them naturally. Um, I love that the old man didn't have to pay. That was so cool. Yeah. Yeah, there was no no sort of you've got to get off the bus or anything like that. No, fine, he doesn't have any money. <laughs> Let him ride free, which is can't, yeah, that's nice. Can't hardly pay, he doesn't have any money. Um <laughs> But I, I, I would just before Jean asked her question, I would magnify for folks what you said was, you know, who makes the first move and and how is it made? And uh, uh because if you do, if you come in your uh, sticks out like a sore thumb rental car, and and you come in blustering around, and you know, I'm an American. I want some service over here, and why don't you speak English? And yeah, you're probably not gonna, you, you know, you're gonna say, well, these people aren't generous at all. Yeah, well, you started it, <laughs> but <clears throat> that's just you know, that's just me on that. I you know, I I, I watch. Uh, it, it's fun sometimes to watch the the you can pick off the people that live here and and there's people that live here that, that have moved here from the states and been here for five years that still act like asses um and um and then there's people that just fell off the bus and they're acting like a guest in someone's home because you nailed it jane they treat us like guests in their home so maybe we should act like it or maybe they treat right? me that way because i'm already acting like it i don't know but uh, feel free to volunteer first and act like a guest in their home and be polite and and be I don't know I don't get it don't don't try to explain that you know everything it's not a competition they are not impressed and will not be <laughs> with your expertise in what you know not of mm. do not make the assumption that lack of American education or North American education means lack of insight, wisdom, or any kind of knowledge. Um, that assumption was made by some early on in my journeys, writing my first book about the Filipino people, and my time there proved to me that that is just a lie. It's such a lie. Uh, some of the wisest people I've ever had amazing conversations with were by our standards, sorely undereducated, but wise beyond beyond measure. So, hey. it's, you know, it's something to be aware of when you're traveling and when you're even, you know, if you're not traveling far, but you're interacting with people and you make an assumption about what they know, how much they know, um, it, it can it can come up and bite you in the rear if you're not careful. Yeah, because. If you'll shut up long enough to listen, you'll discover that even Costa Rican mechanics know that a balanced life leads to better health than a stress-filled, mm-hmm. i got an appointment to make life. And uh, Right, but here we pay experts to tell us that. Yeah, yeah. $250 an hour to listen. You need to relax. Okay. All right, well. Oh, too funny. Shall we ask you a question? Sure. Richard? I'm here. Who on earth are you? And, and what do you do? <laughs> okay. Um, who am I? Well, I, I, I guess I'm a, a a driven person, really, in the sense that I've been, since I was very young, I've been driven to um, to try and understand the meaning of life, and that's taken me all over the world, and also to try and um help people and hence my lifetime in as a humanitarian worker i spent uh, 20 odd years in africa and, and other 
12, 15 years in Latin America, um, working with non-governmental organizations, trying to uh, improve the quality of life of the people I'm working with, but also at the same time wrestling with my own issues, uh, just trying to see where I fit in, the same as everyone else is struggling in this rapidly changing world of ours. And um, after sort of late in life, I started to put some of this stuff down on paper, uh, written a few, a few books, and uh, that's what I'm really trying to do now. Is I'm semi-retired at the moment. I still get back to Africa now and again. Last year, I was back in Rwanda for a few months, uh, running a refugee camp, and um, and writing at the same time, writing up my experiences. So it's still with the same ultimate goal of trying to serve my fellow <laughs> men and women in the best way that I can, and uh, however meager it may be, to try and contribute something positive to this existence. And that's really shaped my whole life from my earliest years. I've never really had any doubt about what I wanted to do. It's just a question of how I was going to fit in and where I was going to do it. So that I don't know if that answers your question, Jean, but that's um, that's basically it. Well, it does. Um, I, f I find it interesting. A lot of the guests that um, come on, they knew early on in life who they were, and then they forgot about it and got a little off track and then, you know, stumbled back onto the path and had a, a wonderful epiphany and woke up, and now they love who they are and what they're doing. But you've really essentially been living this all of your life. I mean, you knew it when you were young. You did it, and that's who you are. And I think it's absolutely an honor, first, i got to say, to have somebody on the show who has dedicated an entire lifetime, because not many of us can say that, to helping our fellow man. No, I certainly can't say that, um, and and I don't know many people who can. So that it's an honor to have you on the show. But you must have seen some of the most. I mean, we were just talking about going to other countries and having a preconceived notion, really, about what to expect. You must have had firsthand. You must. Have you know, had firsthand experience of that several times, especially if you're going to places like Rwanda. I, I can't even... Um, uh, <laughs> those people have suffered so much. As many of us in America can't quite wrap our heads around the extent of the suffering uh, that's that's gone on in countries like that. So... When did you start? You knew at a young age, and you said you've been doing it for 30-some years longer. When did you start? How did you start? How did that progression go, and how has life changed? That's the big question for me. I mean, how has your life, your awareness of self, your awareness of the world changed being exposed uh, to these places? Well, I first started out as a as a British volunteer, in um, Ecuador in the late 60s, a long time ago now. And then, uh, just exactly as you were saying, actually, Jean, I lost sight of it for a few years. I suppose people told me that I was going to become a teacher, and I thought I was at one time, a teacher of French and Spanish. And I finished my studies and trained as a teacher. But then uh, an opportunity um, came for me to work for Voluntary Service Overseas, a British organization. It's a uh, 
a bit like Peace Corps, a bit like CUSO, actually, in a sense. It's, it's a non-governmental organization that just separates it from, from Peace Corps, but it's a similar thing. You're, you spend two years in a country working with people, um, trying to pass on whatever else. And then um, I, I loved it. I really found that this was this was a thing that I always intended to do and I'd forgotten about for a few years, so you put your finger right on it there. I sort of, And I stumbled back into it, actually. I, stumbled, I applied for a job and, and it came up and I... Once I started it with VSO, I I felt really this is what I was looking for. So I spent four years in Sudan running a volunteer program as a country director, and then I moved to Tanzania. I spent three years there. Um, and it was a fairly uh, – actually, my life was a stroll in the park. It was really delightful, meeting wonderful people until <laughs> – until I went to work in West Africa, and this is quite a bit later on here. This was after I'd spent a um, number of years in South America working in Ecuador and in Bolivia with with indigenous peoples and also with people of African descent, which was fascinating because I took some of my knowledge from Africa with me to Ecuador. There's a large Afro-Ecuadorian community there, about 10% of the population. Everything was really full of idyllic existence. And then in 97, with the American Refugee Committee, I went to... Uh, run a program in Guinea, and that is where the uh, stroll in the park ended because uh, we were dealing with refugees who'd fled from Sierra Leone and Liberia into Guinea. Um, I don't know if you can picture it. Guinea, there are three Guineas in Africa, but I'm talking about French-speaking Guinea, Guinea-Conakry. Guinea-Conakry in West Africa, if you look on the map, it wraps around uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia, and that bit that wraps around is the forest region. And that's where most of the refugees were. They'd fled their home countries, Sierra Leone and Liberia, into Guinea. And we were working about 60 camps there. We had a couple of projects which were um, uh, excellent projects, actually. I think they were superb projects, if, if, if I may say so, um, effective projects. But I wasn't psychologically prepared for it, to be quite honest. I don't know if you know the history of this stuff, but uh, people arriving with hands amputated into... Um, into Guinea, it was horrific experiences, and uh, this this started it started in um, Sierra Leone, uh, Revolutionary United Front, this type of torture. Actually, it was summed up best by an article in a Canadian newspaper I read once, and this article began with a simple sentence: um, "If your mother told you that monsters do not exist, she was wrong." And this stuff was absolutely horrific, and you get thrown into this, and. Um, so we were working with the refugees in the camps and all the time that you it was a microcredit project that we were running giving the refugees small loans to start up businesses um and also we had a, a literacy and a and a reproductive health project those were the two main projects but at the same time you're very conscious of the the trauma that the people have been through and um you know when <laughs> when you're working with when you're working with refugees um it's extremely important, obviously, to give shelter and food and water, uh, sanitation, health services, education, things like that. But it's also extremely important to show them that there's still some there's still some good people left in this world, you know, that they give them something to believe in. And this relationship that you have with refugees is a very, very profound, very profound relationship. I, I there, there were three occasions um, in West Africa that I was I was under fire myself. I was inside. Uh, inside the building, twice in Guinea and once in Liberia, this gunfire going off in the, in the streets, you know, and I, I said to myself, on each occasion, if I ever get out of this alive, I'm going to go back to England and get a job teaching, which is what I should have done in the first place. But you live through it, and um, 
you come out of it a different person. And this experience brings you so much closer to the refugees because what you've experienced is absolutely minimal compared with what they've been through. And um, it builds a very close bond. And, and, and myself, as director, I wasn't always conscious of this at the, t- at the time. The refugees, always, they often refer to you as our father, you know, because so many of them have lost their parents so they don't know where their parents are. And so you represent a certain type of security and stability because you're giving them order, you're giving them the chance to take a little bit of control back over their lives again. And so um, it's a very important role that you have. And, and a lot of this uh, I've sort of worked out afterwards, years afterwards, after I left Guinea and uh, after I left Rwanda and Congo, etc., things like that. Um, very profound, very moving experience. And the deeper you go into it, uh, the deeper you realize that, um, that we're all the same, with the same needs. And uh, working with refugees, astonishing things that you learn astonishing things that you learn you know I was saying to someone recently um, it's very rare that you find a trace of self-pity amongst refugees it's astonishing they've lost everything but what do you gratitude gratitude for the for the minimal things that you do for them and um, there's so many lessons to be learned there so many lessons to be learned you know talk about clouds having a silver lining something like being a, a refugee can have a silver lining there are miraculous things that come out of it. I, I mean, there's there's a line that I quite often come out with when I'm talking about my experiences, and, and it's this, and it's absolutely true, that a child in Africa with nothing is infinitely happier than a child in Britain with everything. Their, their faces explode ah, so with true. joy. And, their faces explode with joy and laughter at the first opportunity. Uh, I, I, and it's a, a real pleasure to be around. There's, there's a there's a beauty hidden in poverty, which um which is not instantly visible you know I, you, you can take as a metaphor i take as the you know the, lo- the lotus flower that that blooms in this fetid swamp you know in the fetid swamp of poverty you see this wonderful flower of human nature and it applies to the refugees and the adults as well they're so quick to laugh and to share their joy with people and i think oh my god if i could only transport some of this joy and happiness which goes comes springs from the essence of their being back to my own country if i could only do this <laughs> um and so part of the, my reason for writing now and talking to people about it is to try and share these discoveries with other people and to share these experiences and say, you know, we've got so much to learn from each other. I, I couldn't agree more. That pretty much sums up my experience in the Philippines with the um, with the orphans. They literally changed my life. Just meeting them changed my life because I saw the world in a whole new way. Because here were these kids who had been through unspeakable horrors, things that I I don't even want to think on, let alone speak on, write about, talk about. I I just don't want to give them the light of day, things that these kids have been through. Yet here they were, laughing and playing and loving life and full of gratitude for everything they had. And everything that, even, even everything that they'd been through, they said that that was part of part of their journey, part of who they were. It was part of their growth. And then it made them stronger people. Um, these are kids, children. And that that was my drive when I came back from that first trip over there. I just wanted to tell everybody in Canada about it. I was like, oh, if you guys could see just for a week, if you could see this firsthand, you'd never live your life the same way again. 
And I still believe that to this day, that if people can be exposed to that so on such a personal level, up close, in amongst it, and live in it for even a week, it, it could change you. The very core of who you are, it could change you, and you will come back to your country, and you will go, this life that I've been living is not, it doesn't honor the truth of what, what it is to be human. Absolutely. But that and and, and I love the 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 lotus flower because that's true. You know, there's this there's this beauty within humanity. And we don't see it sometimes because our attention is drawn to this festering swamp and we're trying to figure out how to get through the swamp and how to, you know, transverse the swamp or get around the swamp or avoid the swamp and not get dirty. But if you could look at it just for for a little while, you might see that flower and realize that there is beauty in there. And if you have enough courage, you can walk through that swamp and get an up-close-and-personal glimpse at that flower. And that's what I would like for people to do. I'd, lo- I'd love for them to wade through the swamp and, and go and, and stare and smell the flower that's growing in the middle of it because they're there. Oh, indeed. That's very nice, Jean, if I may say that. Say so. Thank you. It's it's a it's there's something to the modern industrial life society thing where it really magnifies the separateness. You know, that I'm I'm an island and I must defend myself or I will sink. And so this this shared humanity, this shared we're all here trying to make it gets lost in this drive for competition and squash the other person. And um uh, uh but it it makes me think of um I guess it was Wayne Dyer that's so fond of saying that, you know, when you squeeze an orange you get orange juice. Why? Because that's what's inside. And 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 some people like say, well, you know, you squeeze people in the modern society and they get angry, so that must be what's inside. And and I'm saying that's not really squeezing that you got stuck in traffic. It's when you don't know if you're – forget that you don't know what your next meal is going to be. You don't know if you're ever going to eat again. That's getting squeezed. And what comes out is this beauty of relationship and kinship and – and genuine gratitude, like you said, for the, the smallest thing. This fellow could have walked to Uvita. I mean, he was an older gentleman, gray hair and gray mustache and and uh, lots of experience lines on his face. But but he could have walked to Uvita. It's not really that far from where I got him, picked him up, just a few kilometers. He could have done it. Um, and... And I gave him a ride that made it just a little bit quicker. And and he he was like, you know, he heard I was looking for a house. He was like, I've got a friend that's got a house for sale. I'll be happy to give you his number if you want. You can go by there and look at the house. And and you know, and and then later the you know, well if you want to go to the beach, you know, you call me sometime. We'll go spend the afternoon. And he's offering to give up his whole afternoon. He doesn't even know my name. He didn't even know my name. Offering to give up his whole afternoon someday of my choosing 
to go show me a good time at the beach. That's that's pretty deep gratitude. When's the last time you gave somebody a ride in, in Chicago and they offered to do anything besides not kill you? <clears throat> And I know, I'm sure that, you know, you can regale us with stories that, you know, make even these people appear to be living in the lap of luxury. But I guess my point is that these people and the people in Sudan, they really sort of act like people living in the lap of luxury. And the ones that are living in the so-called lap of luxury act like, well, they can be problematic. <clears throat> okay, they act... They act like assholes. I can say that because I used to be one. So, you know. Yeah, the thing is, is that the myth of our culture that one day we will have enough and that will bring happiness, but it doesn't because the the, the, the appetite is never satisfied. And you see the the, the, sim, the simplicity of of life in uh, simplicity of life in in Sudan, for example, which is the poorest country that I've been, and um, the richness of the. Uh, uh, the kindness of the people, um, instant, instant, spontaneous kindness and generosity with what they've got, and um, you, you know, one of the things I, I think hardship is therapeutic. I think we should be introduced to hardship. We keep trying to avoid, you know, get, to, to shield our children from hardship, but it's therapeutic. I'm not talking about sweatshops or in, in Bangladesh or God knows what or something. I'm talking about. Introducing children to some honest labor at an early time in life. Nothing, you know, just make them feel worthy. To make them feel as if they're contributing something to life. To make them feel that um, there's something honorable in work. And I, I've seen this so often, you know, the young the young siblings in, in, in Africa. Uh, sorry, I'm just trying to put my phone off at the moment. Um, no worries. You know, young young kids... They, they have big families and you get typical African village and the kids spill out of one of their huts into another and they all live together and play together. There's a, usually an adult around to keep an eye on them. But, but, the, but the kids are only from two or three years old. They're looking after a younger sibling or they're going to draw water from the well, carrying this bucket of water back on their heads at the age of seven or eight or something like that. Or tending animals. These young little kids looking after sheep and in, in Bolivia, up in the mountains, and things like that, you know. But they, their jobs are real responsibility, and I think I really think that this type of hardship hones the spirit, um, and it teaches us there's something that there's, there's a humility that's that's built into this hardship thing. So you don't grow up thinking you're the center of the world, thinking you've got a, a right to so many things, because um, once once we start on this track that um of, of acquisition, really. It, it doesn't bring happiness. I mean, and this type of self-indulgence ultimately leads to, leads to despair. I'm sure that so many so-called psychological problems in our in our country um, are the product of, of this pursuit of happiness that we call it, but in a material sense. And so, like, going back to my point I made earlier, there there are wonderful things, things of great value to be learnt from um, from seeing people living in these in these very simple conditions. Yeah, the, the first and foremost in my mind being it a restoration of your faith in your fellow man that what's what's really inside down at the core is 
not rotten. It's wonderful and continually renewing. And uh, uh, but it does seem odd and and perhaps even illogical that. To some extent, the less people have, the more generous they are. Yeah, it's been my experience, Rick. And 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 it seems like it ought to be, you know, you, oh, this one has more, so he'll be more generous because he has more to give. And it, it doesn't seem to. It, it seems to, it, like you said, it it becomes this pursuit uh, of happiness, not not perhaps in the way that was intended when documents were written in the 1700s. It's this pursuit of happiness in if I get enough. Well, what's enough? Because in Sudan, enough is very little. And but it but apparently it is enough because, like you said, they're just laughing and shining and and uh, I mean, how many people have ever seen a video where you you know someone went to. Africa on a on a visit or whatever, and they went to some tribal area, not a city, but out to a tribal area, and that the kids didn't just, and the adults often didn't just smile and laugh at the very just the drop of a hat, and uh, it's in the city where there's more that you find people you know sitting on the corner with their head down and seemingly un unsalvageable situations. It uh, you know. The best, the best stones that you might find to gener- to decorate your garden or whatever, you find them in rivers and 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 they've been tumbled and and scraped and scratched until they're polished. You know, the rocks that are just sitting on the side of the mountain where they've been for eons are they're just kind of rocky, craggy looking things, which to me can be also be very beautiful. But but the shiny, polished suave stones have come from great friction, little friction now and again. Knocks off the rough edges and polishes you up, I think. I really think. I think so too, Rick. It certainly seems that if someone were, you know, to take their immense scientific minds and put it to the evidence, you know, where do you find the joy that spills over and the the loving kindness that flows like rivers it's in in people in situations like that or in situations that we've been taught are situations of not enough and suffering and and and, and yes horrendous things have been done to people and 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 but i think there's more suffering in a high rise in new york city than there is in a refugee camp in Sudan, really, because their body might be suffering, but their spirit's flourishing. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair comment, Rick. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a spiritual freedom that you find in, in, in Africa, which you probably wouldn't find in a tenement building in, in Brooklyn or wherever. Um, and, and a lot of it relates to question of detachment detachment from material world and I'm not talking about sackcloth sackcloth and ashes and and renouncing the material world you can live surrounded by things it just depends whether you own the objects or whether they own you and if if you've got that level of 
detachment, then you're then you're a free person. And uh, I don't think you can really it's something you have to work on and cultivate because all, all of our lives and that's why I'm speaking for the UK here and I'm sure that North America as well, but all our lives has been a conditioning with certain values which are implicit in our, in our culture. But there are alternatives to this, as a lot of people are saying. A lot of people are saying, um, you know, really, the life that I'm leading is wrong. You know, there has to be something else here. And you, you're longing for something which makes sense of this whole existence that you're in. And you know that it doesn't, it's not something that it's a, that, that exists on a material level. Right? I think one of the great myths in our society is that, we, that the belief that truth is only accessible through the intellect, that you've got a, a PhD in physics or uh, whatever biology that you're more likely to know what life is all about, the purpose of life, than someone who has an, an IQ of a hundred. But it's not true. It's not true. Truth is accessible to anybody, and it's it's an expression of um, communication of of the soul with the, with the spiritual forces, which which are understood implicitly, by the way, with people in, in Africa and the indigenous peoples of Latin America, for example, that I work. They understand this implicitly, but we don't. We've lost we've lost sight of it. And I think there's if someone said there's no there's no oppression worse than worse in this world than longing for the truth and not knowing where to find it. And um I, I my own feeling with regard to having spent a lifetime thinking about this and is that anyone who thinks that this world as it is at the moment can continue much longer the way it's going is not facing up to reality. Economically, environmentally and socially our modern world is in trouble and we've got to come up with answers urgently. Um and so uh, these are things which I, I believe I've learned from my experiences, and I'm trying to apply them now in, in the stuff that I'm talking about and writing about. To, to say, my dear friends, you know, we got it wrong somewhere. We got it wrong, radically wrong. There has to be a new approach. And um, I'm supreme, supremely optimistic about the state of the world, but I think we're going to go through bad times before it gets better. But I think um, we will come out of it, and I think we'll come out of it. At, the race of people, and we have no choice. We have to change as people if we're going to survive in this world of ours because we are so interdependent now, totally. We, I don't think there's an economic system on the table now that works. I mean, just the, the destruction of the rainforest and the climate, you know, none of it works. We've we got to think outside the box, go back to square one, and we've got to say, as a species, as a people, we have to work together to solve this. And don't, don't look to our political leaders to come up with answers. They're not going to come up with answers. It's, it's, it's we the people. We need this critical mass of right thinking, right believing, right acting, spiritually motivated people. This is how we're going to turn this mess around. So these are the conclusions that, I, that I've come to. And so much of this I've, I believe I've learned from my, the fortunate interaction I've had with the wonderful people in, in Africa and Latin America. And I think key key to that is that um, when we talk about changing the world and making it a better place, some people get stalled or afraid that their contribution simply can't be enough. Um, you know, how how do I, lowly little human that I am, make the world a better place? Look inside. Um, yeah. You know, live a better life. That touches the world so if we could all just look inside and and make the changes within that are necessary for us to live balanced happy lives um, that does it does touch the people that we interact with and it snowballs 
and it yeah. becomes this big, big ball rolling downhill that simply can't be stopped. And we're seeing it now. I mean, I honestly, I 2009 wrote my first book. My big thing was, if the world's ever going to change to the point where they're going to stop fighting about whose God is the best God, then the Catholic Church is going to have to get on board with this shit. And to be quite honest, at the time, even writing it down as this is my vision, this is my hope, this is my dream, I never thought I would live to see the day when a pope would stand up in public and say, eh, he's God, or he's gay, he's a child of God, it's okay, who am I to judge? I mean, you know, the changes that have been wrought politically, you know, in in the major religions, um, socially, in the last three years, are astounding. And so we sit on the verge again with this serious situation, and we're sitting on the verge of, okay, is America going to go to war? And from what I hear last night, we've got Russia, who's been the scariest country for, for ages is one of the scariest countries, say, no, 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 I got a solution that will make peace. Russia wants to make peace. This is not something anybody would say would be a possibility even five years ago. So our world is changing, and it's changing because individuals have changed within themselves. They have looked at their world. They have decided that they do not like what they see They are aware that what we are doing is not working and they have taken steps in their own lives to change that. And that has changed what the governments and the church leaders are doing. Why? Because when we the people show up, the governments don't have a choice but to say, okay, that's how you want to play, then that's how we'll play. They don't have a choice. The power is in the individual. Always has been, always will be. There's no question in that. And the reason that these people who have been through these horrific things in in places like Sierra Leone can survive is because they know that instinctively. They know that. The indigenous peoples know that. They know that within the tribe, every single member of that tribe is an important piece of a big puzzle. And so they are treated as such. And they grow up knowing that they are an integral part of this community, that they are needed, that they are valued. So when everybody on the planet is feeling that way, things are going to be a lot different than they are now. Oh, absolutely, Jean. Yeah, we start with ourselves. That's That's the only thing that we can really change. And as society changes as a result of the change that goes on in individuals, so I agree absolutely with what you're saying. It is fun to watch, I think. Um, I can, you know, honestly say I've been the most entertained in the last couple of years watching the shifts in the education, in the governments, in the way that religions and and different spiritual backgrounds and belief systems are communicating and talking and sharing and learning um, with each other. It's it's just, it's a good time, I think, to be alive because we're seeing something that's never been done on our planet before. No, I agree, absolutely. We should be grateful for these days because 
probably never before in, in, in human history has such an opportunity been available to us because the, we're talking about change on a global level and that was not been, not, not been possible before. And it has to happen if we're going to survive, get through these crises that are facing us at the moment. And it has to be a change through through the... I'd just like to add to one point that you're saying, you know, having you know, the things I've traveled in and learned and studied and, and, and read. The, the central core of religion, there's no contradiction there. It's, it's basically the, the, the golden rule, do unto others as you, you would that they would do unto you. And this is, this is present. There's this golden thread running through all the different world religions that really the, the differences are superficial. And if we approach other people as a friend, as a sister, as a brother from our own family with the confidence, as, as you mentioned earlier on, I mean, kindness begets kindness. And that's the first step. Um, then you, you, you're building relationships which are really unbreakable. I mean, I, I tell you, I'm in, I'm in touch now. I'm a, I, I really left Sierra Leone. I've worked with refugees since then in, in Rwanda and the Congo and stuff like that. But I'm still in touch um, through Facebook. And what a miraculous thing that is. I keep making contact with people, with the refugees, some of, some of whom, well, some have gone back to Sierra Leone and Liberia. And others are in Canada and some are in the UK. And one recently... Um, She's in uh, she's in Sweden now. She got, went with her husband. She managed to emigrate to Sweden. She's working as a as a nurse. She's from Liberia actually. Her name is Ku K O Ku. And we're in touch on Facebook. And she said she asked me if I could help her help her write a book about her experiences. And so I said, yeah, we, we work on it together and sort of giving some some sort of help, I hope, and how to set about writing it. But but these these relationships that you did you build in the in these times? They last forever. They last forever. Actually, to tell the truth, I can only vaguely remember her. <laughs> but she remembers me, and she said, "Is that the Richard Poole from Guinea? You know, our country director?" And I said, "Yeah, that's right, Kun." So we exchanged sort of greetings and stuff. And and these relationships last forever. When you when you you know you know because they know that you would you would die for them. They would die for you. Eh? Or maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. But whatever it is, this this bond. And the same thing happened with me in Haiti recently. I was running a refugee camp in Haiti after the earthquake. And the same thing happened there. And, and, and it's really these circumstances. They, they, they bring you so close together in, in, a, meaningful, in a meaningful way that... Um, anyway, I'm rambling a bit here, but it's really that's, that's the way that the, the world is changing through these experiences that people share together and how we learn from these experiences and we grow this the spirit is honed i think through the through the experiences and um anyway <laughs> digressed a bit there but that's uh, oh no it's, it's oh, wonderful rambling away. <laughs> it's what we do here it we is. digress <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i wonder if i i could tell you a little bit about one or two people that i met i was just thinking about People that I met in Guinea about the amazing one particular person I met in Guinea. Am I able to tell you about this? Would take about um, five minutes to tell you. Please go well, ahead, Rick. I think we should. Well, we're right about uh, we're right about break time. In fact, we've as we often do gone uh, blasted right past it because we have these incredible expansive conversations. Um, yeah, it's like somebody once said. I love deadlines, particularly the the screaming noise they make as they pass. Uh, <laughs> But uh, perhaps we'll take just a, a, a brief break, and then would love to hear a couple of stories um, uh, about folks, and 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 also to hear a little bit more about uh, uh, mankind's last chance. Uh, there's a 
There's a there's a bold title for you, uh, and mm-hmm. I, we like bold around here. We like stir it up a little bit and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, I don't know, uh, Gene. Maybe it's because he's up there visiting. I'm thinking about Jordan again with some of his, you know, it ain't too hard or you know, uh, anyhow something along those change lines things. Absolutely. You know, um, surprise us. You know, I oh. don't know. Do we still have a Do we still have an MP3 of change makers? Um, we do somewhere. We have uh, the rough cut of change makers. We do. It's, well, it's, it, it's a rough go. cut. It's a rough cut, but it's the only cut, and it would make sense because you know we change makers are sometimes a little rough cut or rough. I'm just uh, right. Particularly when I show up for right? eight, 8 o'clock in the morning for shows. I, I, I Absolutely. Do, I do okay, actually. All right, so um, this would be Jordan Okren with um, the title of our film that we're not filming, we're living, called Changemakers. We'll be right back. Stay with us, folks. Our hearts are burning. 
Welcome back, everybody. That was our dear friend and and current Jane's current house guest, Jordan Oak. Who would have thunk it that somebody would come on the radio and you would say, "Man, you're awesome. I would love to just hang out." And then there he is. Y'all are hanging out. Of course, you're sick. Yeah, it's 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 a really um, strange strange way for the universe or George to confirm for me the whole um, artist treat studio thing is a good idea. <laughs> um, but fun. I'm I'm grateful to have had him here. Um, grateful to have him here. Uh, it's you know, my husband and him get along great. My daughter and him get along fantastic. Even the dogs like him. So it's cool. He's he's very he he's a very nice house guest, pleasant house guest to have. So he's welcome back anytime. Oh well, that's lovely. Yeah, well, any house guest that cooks me dinner in my own house <laughs> can come anytime right. they like. <laughs> you're on my list. You're on the VIP list. You're welcome anytime. Come right around the velvet rope. <clears throat> oh, you're sick. Let me cook for you. I got this covered. Yeah, no, he's been really good. Um, it's just astounding to me that this is somebody who we met because of the show. Like, I would have, if not for the show, Everyday Connection, I would have had no idea who this young man was. I probably would have never met him, heard of him, heard his music, which would have been a shame because he is super talented. Uh, and so, you know, that's just part of the joy of doing what we do is that okay, I met this online and met his parents online who... who Uh-oh. Jane? Hello. Which is cool. Cause Uh-oh. Well, Hello. yeah. Jane? Okay. Maybe we're having uh, some Canadian Mountain uh, connection problems. It happens. I'm sure she'll be right back with us. Um, and and it is amazing what we do, and 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 a real gift to be able to do what we do because it's a wonderful thing. Uh, and we meet such awesome people. That's that's often what we tell people that we do is we twice a week we tell people how awesome they are. Um, <laughs> It's a right job, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> That's right. There she is. So right before the break, Richard, you were about to regale us with a, a couple of stories, and I would love that. I, if I may, I, I'd like to tell you about, a, I think, a, a remarkable person that I, I met in Guinea. I, I arrived in, in Guinea in 97. I was asked to take over this program working with refugees and, and in the office in the capital Conakry there was this woman who was a cleaner her name was Delphine she was uh, about 30 years old had a son about 12 years old um, illiterate woman from the, the forest region and I, I don't know the history of how she came to Conakry at that time but anyway she thinks she may have been staying with her sister who was living in the capital or something like that and um, very cheerful lovely woman stocky sort of woman, I don't know, about five feet tall, five feet one inches tall, something like that. And very good at her work. And I could see that she was really a very bright lady. And many organizations have what we call a staff development line item in the budget, money that you can use to help staff you think uh, would benefit from, would, would enjoy having an opportunity to further their studies in whatever field that they wanted to, to pursue. And so uh, I asked Delphine one day, 
<clears throat> if she would like to do some evening classes. To, <laughs> for some, she said, yeah. She said, I'd like to learn English. And she said, I'd like to learn to read and write in English. Well, she spoke, she's from a tribe called the Kisi tribe, from the town of Gekudu, up in the forest region. And she spoke Kisi, her own language, of course. And she spoke pretty good French. Didn't know much English. And so uh, we agreed and we paid for her to go to these literacy classes. And um, very soon she learned to read and write in English very quickly. I still remember the pride that she showed me one day. Well, the water that came out of the tap wasn't safe to drink, so you had to filter it and boil it. And with such pride, she showed me that she'd put the water in this plastic bottle and written the letter B on it to boil it. How proud she was of that, of that achievement that she knew that the word of or something in French begins with B. And, um, and she progressed from there. So I, I was there for three years, and I went away, and I came back a couple of years later, uh, in um, 2003, I think it was, and she was heading up a, a logistics department with two people working under her, one of, one of whom was a university graduate. She was running, this is supplying the logistics to the, we had three offices in the forest region, Gekuduma Sent and Zerakore, and we were working in 60-odd camps there. And she was running the whole logistics office. And you know, while I was there in 19, in this short visit, I was only there for, for a month or so on, a, on assignment, and I was talking to Delphine, and we were standing on the balcony of the office in Conakry. And um, I just left her for a minute or two and, and came back. And she was in tears. And I, I said, I said well, Delphine, what's happening? She said, oh, she said, this black bird came and perched on the, on the balcony next to me. In our, in our culture, when a black bird comes in and does this, it means that somebody's died. She said, I'm pretty sure that my father has died. My father's dead. I have to go and see him. And I said, well, Delphine, Gekudu is 500 miles away. We're Sandwells in, in, in the forest region. Not only that, at this particular time, Charles Taylor's troops had, um, from Liberia, had invaded this area of Guinea. And so it was under, under the control of these Liberian militias at this particular time. And she said, no, I've got to go and see my father. I've got to see if he's okay. I said, Delphine, it's dangerous. You'll never get into Gekudu. She said, I'm going. So she packed her bag and got on a bus and went to the the nearest town that she could reach in safety called Kisidugu. And, um, and from there, she was going to try and find a means to get to Gekudu to see, see what had happened to her father. Well, she gets to the town of Kisidugu, and um, she's wandering around the bus station there, and she hears this voice say, Delphine, 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 it's me, it's me, Gabriel, it's me, Gabriel. She looks around, and she saw this young man there. And she didn't know him from Adam, she didn't know who he was. And he said, it's me, Gabriel. Don't you recognize me, Delphine? He said, I was the Liberian refugee in the street. He said, you gave me some money one day. You gave me some money one day when I had nothing to eat. Don't you remember me? She couldn't remember him from Adam. You know, she was a very generous lady. who used to give money to people all the time. And so she started chatting to him. And he said, what are you doing here? She said, well, I'm trying to get to Gekudu. I'm a bit worried about my father because, you know, at the moment, I don't know, but I just got a feeling something's wrong. And he said, oh, don't worry. He said, I'm an officer in the Liberian army, he said. I will give you safe passage to Gekido. And there's this fellow that she just met on the street, couldn't even remember him, bumped into him in Kisidugo. So he commandeers a vehicle, gets a vehicle from somewhere, and he takes her into Gekido, under his protection, into Gekido, while this fighting is going on there. She goes to her house, where her family home was, and finds that the house had been destroyed. What happened was, the Ghanaian army, they'd, they'd sent a, a plane over to drop some bombs, on the Liberians mistakenly bombed their own town of Gekudu. 
So Delphine's house had been destroyed and her father was in the house. He'd been destroyed. He'd been killed in, the, in this bombing. So Delphine, according to Kissy tradition, she had the father buried under the floor of the living room, which is what they do, took care of that. And then she came back to, to Colin Cray, escorted by Gabriel, this young Liberian officer, back as far as Kissy Dugo. And then she came back to Colin Cray, And I saw her when she came back. So she, she told me all of this. Quite a remarkable story. But the story doesn't end there because... Delphine had a brother called Alphonse. Alphonse was one of the guards in our office. And guards, this is a bit of a misnomer, but they, they open the gate and when people arrive and they bring messages in. And a lovely, a very quiet man, Alphonse. He was very, a gentleman, a very, very gentleman, very gentlemanly individual. And Delphine said to me, told me that Alphonse had disappeared. And I said, what do you mean he's disappeared? She said, Alphonse, he's just disappeared. We haven't seen him for weeks. We don't know where he is. What's happened? So... I wasn't in Guinea for, 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 for very long on that occasion. I left and I still kept in, in touch with Delphine. In fact, I've seen her again recently. She's staying with her sister in Paris. She's come over to Paris for some, for some medical treatment. And um, she filled me in just recently when I saw her just a few weeks ago about what happened to Alphonse. Delphine was so worried about her brother, she decided to, on her own initiative, to go to the Minister of Justice. Now, can you remember, just imagine this, this woman who not long before was an illiterate peasant woman from the forest region, she goes to the office of the Minister of Justice and says, you know, please tell me what's happened to my, my brother, Alphonse Tomno, I'm very worried about him. The Minister of Justice had no time for her, so he got rid of her. So she left his office, and so she decided, no, I'm not giving up, I'm going to go to the President of Guinea. So she went to the Presidential Palace, this time Lansana Conte was the President at that time, and she waited outside the gates of the presidential palace every day, day, day after day after day. And um, they wouldn't let her in. And one day, by chance, Lansana Conte, the president, looking out his window, he saw, he saw Delphine there and he asked his secretary, he said, who's that woman there? And I think the secretary must have said something like, oh, some crazy woman or something like that. And Lansana Conte said, um, well, I've seen her there for a few days now. Please allow her to come in. So Delphine was allowed to come in. She met the president and she explained the situation and said, I really won't know what's happened to my brother Alphonse and I'm very worried. And Lansana Conte wrote a letter for her by hand and said, any time, I will follow up on this, but any time you want to come in and see me, just show this at the gate and the guards will allow you to come in and see me. So she left. She didn't hear anything from the president. A few weeks later, she went back, went to the gate with her letter for Lansana Conte. Somebody took the letter. The guard on the gate took the letter and the fellow disappeared and never came back. She never saw the guard or the letter again, so she couldn't get in to see the president. So she was really upset about this. So the last thing she did, she went to see the head of security, the secret police. I mean, my God, talk about putting your head in the lion's mouth. You know, she went to see the head of security and um, to ask where her brother was. She wanted to know what happened to him. By this time, he'd been disappeared for, you know, months on end. And the head of security said to her, my friend, take my advice, don't take this any further, just leave. Basically, it was a veiled threat saying, um, if you pursue this, you will end up, something similar will happen to you. So Delphine, and that was the situation, and she never found out what happened to her brother Alphonse, Alphonse Tolno, she never found out. But I'll give you just an example of how people can, can simple people, simple, apparently simple people with enormous reserves of courage, and resolve can do the most amazing things. And there's this lady now who speaks, my God, her, her English is so much better than my French. 
French teacher at one time, one time, but her English is so much better than my French, believe me, a remarkable lady. And I was fortunate to meet up with her again recently in Paris, as I said. I went over to see her just to, just to see how she was doing and to just catch up on things. Her, her son, incidentally, Pierre, has just completed a master's degree in, um, in uh, information technology. So remarkable changes that take place in people's lives. And, it's, you know, you're very proud to be part of this. Absolutely that's my, astounding. That's my sto- story of Delphine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 a beautiful story with a uh, you know a few bumps as most beautiful stories have, but uh, it is the the reserves that 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 people have that that really we all have and and are maybe not aware uh, because we've never had to test them uh, continually astound me. Uh, you know, these people and, um, you know, unassuming taxi driver picks you up to take you to your repaired car and what? You might want a house in Plantanillo. Well, my my brother lives in Plantanillo and he sells houses. I'll give you his number. Um, You know, I have access to a private beach. I'll give you my number. Um, Oh, I know how to. Well, let me call the police chief. I'll find that stuff for you. Uh, we talk often about Bob, the sandwich guy here. Somebody robbed his place, took his passport, and three flat screen TVs, and you know nobody knows anything, and he's not making any headway. And it was some young local fellow called up the police chief, said, you know, hey, what, my friend over here with the and. Uh, He's got his stuff back, you know. No idea whether anybody's been arrested or whatever's happened about any of that other kind of stuff. But he got his stuff back, so he's happy. That's all he wanted to know about. And um, uh, so they do. They they uh, they may be un- uneducated, but they are not unintelligent. They're <laughs> they're miracle working human beings. And. Um, uh, it, it, it just—they never would, cease to amaze me. I would go so far as to say, as they might have a more accurate education or a more um, a more useful education than anything our American education system could provide, our North American education system could provide. They have been educated by the school of life, um, and to me. If if our education system does anything, it's to knock out that connection that we have with our intuition. It's to kind of condition us to not um, to not follow our heart and to not follow our instincts, um, but rather to overthink and and analyze and you know I mean. <laughs> I would rather be educated in a tribe in the middle of Africa any day as opposed to being educated in the Canadian education system right now. As for the way that the world is going to be well, working soon, I think that I think that some of these people have the tools that are necessary to be able to grow and expand past our current state. And well, I think that our education system is robbing us of those. Yeah, I, I think 
I think in many ways it's just, it's it has always kind of worked that way. I mean, I, we talk about the the wonderful synchronicities that have occurred since I just kind of jumped off the cliff and went to Costa Rica. That you know, apparently, if you go get a sandwich, uh, that's how you find a house, and you know, strange synchronous things. Well, or you could be Delphine and jump off the cliff, and I'm I don't care what's going. It's, I have to go see about my father. There's a problem. And so she just goes, and here's this fellow that she doesn't remember from Adam. That not only is the 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 poor urch, street urchin that she apparently gave some generosity to, showed some generosity to, he is in a state of gratitude for that. So as an officer in the army, escorts her to go see about her dad. It it it, it works that way everywhere if you let it. You have to not insist on doing it your way, you know. It it apparently Frank Sinatra with I did it my way was not giving good advice. <laughs> <laughs> I think you put your finger on that, Rick. Absolutely right, yeah. <laughs> and I and I found this if you if you adopt a prayerful approach to life then all sorts of wonderful coincidences happen. Uh I yeah that I think that to finally just round off the Delphine story, I think what we think happened to Alphonse, uh, Alphonse Tolno is his name, was that um, he may have spoken critically uh, in public about the, the mistaken bombing on the home in Gekido and criticized the government. And at that time, he didn't do things like that. And that may have been the reason why he he was disappeared, to use a more modern term. Yeah. 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 Right. He he was taken away, never to be seen again. Right. Correct. Correct. And and maybe we all have some sort of a deep-seated fear that if we come out of our shell and speak our truth that we'll be rounded up. But that day is gone in most places and rapidly going in the others, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a revolution in our sense of um, fairness and certainly in transparency, which is taking place at the moment. You know, I mean, I don't want to get into politics, but I think something miraculous has happened. This vote in the British Parliament recently not to support the attack on Syria was totally unexpected. I think it's, well, I, I think maybe there's a divine hand in this. And I, and I think we're stumbling into doing the right thing by, by chance. I mean, both the U.S. and all of us. And um, I, giving, you know, giving peace a chance and giving people a chance to try and resolve things through diplomacy and sit around a table. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned earlier on about Putin coming up with a possible solution to this, you know. I and mean, even John Kerry made this offhand remark about that he didn't think it was, I think it was meant to be a joke. But it's turned out to be a, a plausible, a plausible strategy for trying to solve the problem in Syria as opposed to just bombing the hell out of people and killing more innocent people. So I, I, I perhaps just the optimism. But yeah, really, because but I, I mean, who would have ever thought that Syria would say, yeah, yeah, we yeah. could do that. Who would have ever thought that Syria would even consider giving up their weapons? But, I mean, if you think about it, here's one major superpower, Russia, saying, and I don't care what anybody says, Russia is still a superpower. So you can argue that till you're blue in the face, but I'm not going to bend on that. They're still a superpower. And they're saying to you, if you give up your chemical weapons, this other superpower over here is not going to drop bombs on your heads. Well, you know, you might just consider it at, at a certain point to get to the point where, I'm tired. I think everybody's just tired. 
of this war stuff. So you get to the point where you're just like, eh, uh, let's see, more death, bloodshed, destruction, give up our chemicals. Yeah, yeah, we could give up our chemicals. That could work. That, that um, sounds so much better than the whole bombing thing. Right? It is. It's such a simplistic thing. And for it to be coming from Putin, Putin is, is kind of, ah, what did he just say? But... The point is, is that it is, it, it happened, and so now it's on the table, and it's being discussed, and it's being considered, and, you know, places like Britain are saying, yeah, we're not really into going to war again. You know, you've got American troops that are putting pictures all over the internet of them with signs saying, we don't want to bomb Syria. This is not our fight. This is not our war. This is not why I joined join the army. What happens when your soldiers refuse to fight? What's going to yeah. happen? What if we had a war and nobody showed up? Pick up and nobody <laughs> showed up. But the governments can decide to fight all they want. But if the dude with the gun isn't willing to shoot some guy because he happens to have a friend from the same country on Facebook, he's not willing to go over to that country and shoot that guy because his government says they're bad. But he knows different because he talks to them almost daily. And now you want him to fly over there and drop bombs on them. Now, this, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. That's the bottom line. You cannot take that connection that people have made away from them. They will not allow it. So they are seeing the world in a whole different way. And I don't care how many governments say, oh, this is the right thing to do. If the people refuse to pick up the guns and shoot at each other, there will be no war. And and we're rapidly approaching that point because it it, it – it it comes down to what you've pointed up. It comes down to communication. The the the, the people are talking to each other. The governments won't talk to each other because it's like, well, they're they're the bad guys, so we don't talk to them. Okay, well, the people are talking, and and so now we the people are showing up and saying, you know, it's like like they ran a poll. Everybody's all, you know, in the press all about, you know, well, uh, Obama's being, you know, wishy washy. And delaying and, and and risking the credibility of the nation, and yet the polls show that eighty percent of Americans do not support anything bombing or otherwise military intervention in Syria. They just don't, and um, and he knows that I think, and um, and if a little bit of delay allows a negotiated solution then I think he's done the... Look, if you know that you've got the biggest, baddest gun, it's not a brave thing to shoot it at somebody. The brave thing is to wait a minute and see if we can do something better. Um, it is a position of strength that, you know, yes, as he said, the, the pressure's still on. They're going to have to behave or they're, because we're not going to allow this to go on. But we will talk about a better, a better way than bombing. Well, that's that's a position of strength that does that. That's not it, it to me. The pull the trigger is the always the cowardly thing to do. Yeah. I think that's, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Well, well I, it's we live in this world of the of the Nintendo War. You don't actually. Um, have to 
see very much, you know, up close and personal harm and damage. You can pull a trigger on a video screen thing and, oh, I did it. Look, it's cool. Uh, I think there's been a um, a massive shift in, in um, human consciousness in, in, in over the past two or three decades. I mean, if you, if you think back to the 20th century, which wasn't very long ago, um, and, and we somehow managed to murder 150 million of our fellow human beings. There were wars with you know, Germany and France and Italy and Japan and China and the Balkans and God knows what, you name it. At the, at the present time, there, there's no war, there are no wars going on between sovereign states. This is an astonishing change in consciousness. Now, we, we, we might like to think that we're responsible for it through being becoming more reasonable people, but I don't know whether we are. All I recognize now is that, uh, you're alluding to it just now, Gene, I think this, um, this, this seismic shift in consciousness where people are just saying, we've had enough, we don't want this war anymore, we're tired, there have to be other solutions. And this is one of the, this is one of the really healthy signs that I see in our in our day to, in our in our in our world today, and I think that these changes are exactly that. They're going to come from the people. They're not going to come from our leaders. We we bought into this myth of leadership for too long that they're going to solve our problems. They don't. It's it's changing society one at a time um, through ourselves and a great this building up of what I I call a critical mass of right thinking, right believing, right acting people. And it doesn't matter what your background is or where you come from or what religion you come from. If you subscribe to these values, which, by the way, are inherent in every single world religion, about loving thy neighbor and showing justice and kindness and truthfulness and responsibility, compassion, all these things there. If we subscribe to these values, if we reclaim our spiritual heritage, whatever religious system it comes from, therein lies the answer. So it's a spiritual solution, and uh, one of the things that the point that I try to make strongly in the book is that there there are no economic solutions to our economic problems. There are only spiritual solutions. If you look at the cause of our latest financial collapse, and there's going to be another one very soon for, for, for sure, even bigger than the last one in 2008, they're caused by deviancy of one form or another, what we call leverage, people shifting money from one place to another to no productive end, putting it in their pockets. These are moral problems. And immorality is, is spirituality at the social level, the way we deal with one another. So basically, we're not going to solve these problems with new economic policies. We're going to solve it when we the people take charge of our destiny. And it's not something that anyone can lead. It's a growing awareness which is emerging amongst the people. So I, I think we're witnessing. What I think we're witnessing is the is the dying of an old order and the birth of a new one. So I'm I, I'm actually supremely optimistic about what lies at the other side of it. The question is, do we enter this new era of peace, global peace, peacefully, or are we going to be dragged kicking and screaming into this new world order? But that's that's the way I that's the way I see it. But I'm basically very optimistic. Well, I th I think we're seeing the remnants of the kicking and screaming. Um, certainly in this whole Syria adventure that that we're on right now, but that to me is like the remnants. That's the that's the leftover stuff of the old energy, and that too is going to melt away soon enough. And I, you know, you're right. It is. It's a massive shift. Massive shift in consciousness. Um, it's it's been expected for a long time. And it it can't be stopped. It can't be slowed. Uh, it it will not be undone. 
there is no going back. So this whole, oh, but what if we don't, you know, what if there's at the last minute? We, But there is no last minute. We're over the hump. Is that In my eyes, we're well over the hump um, and well on our way to, to establishing peace. And I'm talking on a global scale. A global community of peaceful individuals just hanging out and having a good time and enjoying this Earth experience. That's where we're headed. I am absolutely positive that I will see it within my lifetime. I have no doubt or lack of faith in what humanity is capable of. And I am excited and grateful to be alive during these times because I get to watch it happen and that to me is the coolest thing ever it it's exciting it's a good thing it's fun it's i don't know i don't have enough words to describe it <laughs> well and i think that, you know i endorse awesome. everything you say Jean. absolutely <laughs> I, not that we're con- that i believe we're constrained by history but uh history has demonstrated that when old orders die and new orders are born that there's always a little rockiness sort of you know, there's always a few that are going to do the kicking and screaming and the thing. And uh, but the the we the people that you mentioned earlier, Richard. You know, when we the people show up, it's it's what governments are facing when these demonstrations happen, and then the government you know tear gases, water cannons, and otherwise abuses people to make them leave, and then they come back the next day. They're just like I I. I I believe there are people in security apparatuses all around the planet going, what happened? We used to shoot at people that got scared and went home. What, <laughs> what happened? It, <laughs> I think times are changing. <laughs> yeah, and and it, it's, it is what, and, and if we can do it through, you know, without there being any, you know, gun shooting revolutions, um, then I think it would be uh, the true revolution because uh, revolutions really aren't about destroying things. They're about building something. They're about educating. They're about um, finding common ground and building on it instead of, you know, okay, we got got 100 things on the table and we disagree about 99 of them. So let's start with, you know, whatever the one is, whatever that may be. Uh, it, it, rather than this government tack for so long of, you know, well, we have differences. We can't talk to them. Well, well, what you don't need to talk to your friends. <laughs> you, you enjoy it, but you don't need to. It's the ones that you disagree with that you need to talk to. And um, uh, I know it's a novel idea, but, you know, it, it, it um, uh, I think these days of standing behind fences and, crouching down and not speaking to our neighbors uh, are fast coming to a close because of nothing else. Our neighbors' kids are talking to our kids. And, you know, so if we can't get, if we can't get our act together, they they already have their act together. So <laughs> they're just waiting. If They would love for us to come along, but if not, they'll be happy to wait for us to get old and gray. And then they'll tell us to sit in the corner while they straighten things out. Um, um, but it, the, the internet has been a, a, a real blessing in this. I think this ability, uh, uh, adults and kids to just you know, uh, my my goddaughter and and, uh, 
and a young man that I've worked with, a son of a friend of mine, they have friends all over the planet. It's not. It, it's almost like an afterthought to mention. Oh yeah, they live in Russia, or oh yeah, they live in Asia, or oh yeah, they you know this one lives in China or whatever. They. It, it, that's not the first thing on their mind. The first thing on their mind is what movie they're all going to want to talk about. Or it's not. Oh, that's a Russian. It, it, it's like an afterthought. It's like, you know, I, I to to uh, Travis. Uh, young man that I know well and have worked with and you know he's talking about some friend and said said something about you know yeah she she went to see you know so and so when they were in Moscow the other day and I said Moscow and she's and he said yeah she's Russian she lives in Russia and he'd been talking about this girl to me off and on for a month and it had just never come up that she lived in Russia that's awesome to me because they're recognizing, and and us old farts more and more so are recognizing that <laughs> humans are humans. You know, they're humans come in in different colors and shades and shapes and sizes, but they don't come. Humans don't come in Russian and Chinese and American and and British and that that's not mm-hmm. part of the human thing condition thing. Um, and. Uh, and thank heavens we're recognizing we made that it up. or remembering it or however people choose to look at that bit of it. So we, we're probably going to have to have you back for a chat, Richard, because we've uh, we've done our ninety minutes in a bit. And, and uh, but I, I, I do want to I do want to be sure before we get gone that we tell people how they can find their book, your book, and find out more about the work that you're doing. Well, the book is called Mankind's Last Chance. <clears throat> but just I, It's the fourth book I've written. The first one took four years to write. The second one, two years. The third one, six months. And this one virtually wrote itself in six weeks. It felt as if everything just came together and it just poured out. So I, I'm feeling um, it was an important book to write. The first three books were about um, anecdotal, really, about my experiences in Ecuador, then Sudan, then West Africa, and Guinea refugees. This one is about the state of the world and the need for basically a spiritual solution to our political, economic, social and environmental problems. And it it, it traces my own spiritual path that I took coming from a a, a agnostic background in Britain um, and drawing quite extensively on my experiences in the field. I don't don't tell the Delphine story, but I tell a number of other stories. And I'm try and bring it all together to to make the argument for um, this new consciousness which is emerging as emerging amongst humanity and that by this city being allowed to, to, to flower and flourish herein lies the, the hope for the future and that we ourselves are take, have to take responsibility for our own destiny at this at this particular time so um, I, I feel it was an important book to write. You know, even looking at it now, it was only you know about a year ago that I wrote it. It was published in the last few weeks or so. I can't remember writing a lot of this stuff. I don't know where it came from. I, I know no one else wrote it because <laughs> I was the person at the typewriter, you know, at the at the laptop. But um, I'm pleased with it. I'm pleased with it. So if you'll forgive me to say that, and with all, with all humility, um, 
it's I felt as if my whole life had been leading up to this moment, all the experiences I've ever had, both uh, overseas in my work and also the spiritual journey I was on came together at this particular time. So I just hope, I mean, if it influences one person alone, I will be a happy man. Well, and, and, and do please go ahead and be pleased with it. It's um, it's, it's not odd that, you know, it's like, well, I didn't. I, I don't remember writing this. Um, I, I don't think. I don't think Jean remembers writing any of her second book. Really, she would read the what she had written afterwards, and then take it to her friend and say, "Oh my God, I can't say this." <clears throat> and her, her friend, fortunately, was one of the sort that just kind of giggled and said, "Well, of course you can, my dear." <clears throat> and now we have a book, but uh, must be must be an interesting experience to. Uh, read something that you yourself have written and, and in Jean's case it wasn't even on a laptop, was it? Most of it was written in a notebook. So it was in your handwriting, sort of. Handwritten. Handwritten. Yeah. All of them. And yeah. and um so, you know, it's like I swear I didn't write this, but I wrote this. But that's why Jean doesn't call herself an author at home. She calls herself a pen. <laughs> Yeah, most of my stuff comes about three o'clock in the morning. I don't know. I wake up with the thoughts in my head, and I have a notebook <laughs> by the side of the bed, and I write down just the first sentence or first word, and then it just comes ten, twenty pages written by hand at terrific speed, and then you have to edit it afterwards. That's where all the hard work comes. Oh, in, the editing. So screwed. Oh, three a.m. Yeah. yeah, I went through that. I went through that um, for a really long time, and oh my goodness, did I ever go days without <sighs> sleeping properly? But the brilliance that comes out. It's at the witching hour is just amazing. I mean, 3 a.m. rocks. 3 a.m. is like the creation hour. Um, a lot of a lot of artists and and musicians I've talked to will say that there's something about 3 a.m. I'll wake up and it's just there. <laughs> Wayne, Wayne Dyer has talked about waking up at 3 a.m. and sitting Lady down, Gaga too. <laughs> putting his putting his pen to the paper, right? and then something comes, and it's like yeah, yeah. it it. it it's amazing. Uh, I, I just the only conclusion I can come to is, is, is there's a hiatus between the day before and the new day beginning when you don't belong anywhere, and so your mind is clearer. But that's just just a theory I've come up with recently. No, that sounds like a good theory. Uh, I like it. But it, it whatever it is, it it, uh, it it may just be some of this we've chosen to hide our own brilliance from ourselves. So. At three, but at three a.m. we're sleepy enough that it sneaks out and. Uh, uh, or doing a interview show where you don't interview, you just chat. The brilliance slips out around the edges. It uh, that's one of those things. Um, and uh, I was I reviewed your bio that came in, and I may have this. And forgive me if I have this information and have not brought it with me. I, that's how much we prepare for our interview chats. Uh, do you have a website that folks could go to to learn more about what you're doing, or should they just pop up to, over to their favorite bookstore? I know that uh, I saw it on Amazon and some of the big a online uh, booksellers, but you know, always check your neighborhood bookseller first just to see. Uh, well, you know, Rick, it's on Amazon, but I'm not an IT person, I have to confess to you. And I don't have a website, and that's really the next thing I should do. But um, oh no, that's perfectly all right. It, yeah. it, um, uh, you know, for Jean for a while, it, and still with all of the, she's got a website. We have a website for the radio show. We, we, 
And, you know, it's, well, if you want to know, read my book. So, you know, it, it uh, there's, there's something to it. There's things that you can't say in snippets and sound bites easily. And, uh, and I can tell from your stories that you have a number of those things and that people would perhaps be well advised to read about mankind's last chance because I would agree with you that a spiritual solution is the last chance. It, uh, when you were first talking about, you know, well, there's the economic and the ecological, and, and, and but then there's this society and this community and the spiritual. Yeah, I, I, I think some UFO could come tomorrow and beam up all the garbage and beam down some gold, and people would still be miserable if they're miserable today. Uh, <laughs> it's not the answer. It's the, It's a symptom. It's not the answer. And, and and you know you go take cough syrup because you have a cough. It it's not it's just masking the symptom. It's not doing anything to make you better. And I think that cleaning up the oceans and 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 trying to you know fiddle with the economic system. I think that's like taking cough syrup. It's it's time that we find out what's really going on. And and you know if we have to take a purgative and throw up, oh well, uh, let's get on with it and and deal with our lack of ease, our dis-ease, rather than all these symptoms. Uh, because I think that the what we see in our youth about, well, we can't fight. I just talked to Sergey yesterday. He's you can't, He's got a thing he's going through this weekend. You can't blow him up today. He'll miss his concert. Um, is that restoration of that connection because they've had outlets and ways around societies limiting their connection um and um, um i'm quite sure that the any small minded ones that that think they want to control things are quite perturbed that they didn't unplug the internet early because it's too late now <laughs> and uh, and that's a good thing well listen richard i just want to uh i really want to thank you for sharing your time your talent and your treasures with us um Amazing stories and uh, insightful observations. Well, it's been a real pleasure, Rick and Gene. Thank you so much for giving me all this, basically two hours you've given me, but thank you so much indeed. I'm very grateful for this opportunity to be able to just share these thoughts with you. And uh, I know we're all on the same path, and uh, it's wonderful to be able to share it with you. Nothing like stumbling upon a friend from the other side of the ocean. <laughs> Always wonderful. That's why we call our our past guests our EC family because you know three of them three of them met up up there in Canada the other day and they got on they made beautiful music together. They literally sang together. It was it was quite something. It's um, cool. And uh, so. Gene, you got to share a little of your, you know, if it wasn't for the radio show, this wouldn't have happened. You got to share a little of that with your friends. I, thought that I was did. Awesome. I did. So yeah. uh, speaking of sharing with friends, we will mention our website at everydayconnection.me. Uh, would love it if everybody got by there. That's where you'll find you know, over 300 hours of archived uh, conversations where we actually try to communicate, and which involves understanding, not just speaking. Uh, and... Um, uh, they also can sign up for our mailing list there so you can keep track of what we're doing. I've been digging through the MailChimp materials. I'm going to be able to produce a newsletter soon, surely by this weekend. 
Shirley. But you don't have to call me Shirley. Oh. <laughs> um, I, I got to find a way to be able to play the bump bump. And uh, when we were doing live radio, there, I had a sound effects deck I could turn to, and uh, I needed it often to follow my jokes. Um, but come by and see us at EverydayConnection.me. Uh, sign up for the newsletter so that you can. Uh, hear about the things that we're doing, run by your favorite bookseller and or, or Amazon and pick up Richard's book, Mankind's Last Chance. And uh, it's a much more optimistic book than you might take from the title. Uh, we Our backs are against the wall, but we know the way out. And uh, you see it in the, I see it in the news every day. So awesome stuff. Jane, you got words of wisdom? Um, to our mother, to each other, and especially to yourselves, stay connected. Stay connected. Wasn't where I was going, but it's a great place to go. So thanks. Hope you have a wonderful now, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next time. Join Gene and Rick again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and subscribe for news and updates. Stop by their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection and join the conversation. You can also subscribe on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection. to ask the biggest question of your life the only question before that question how do you find the perfect ring to ask it with with the incredible selection of diamonds at jared and our price match guarantee you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love visit your local jared store today and dare to be devoted we promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer see jared.com slash price match for details so you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.